It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. I am very excited about this guest, as I am with all of them. I think y'all are figuring this out. But this young woman, an attorney, an activist, a dynamo, um, I actually met because we were both invited to the Emory University School of Law to speak, and they said, oh, we're going to pair you with this lawyer named Nora Benavides. And it was immediate love, um, the passion, the intensity, um, when I... I'm older than her. I'll go ahead and admit it. But I was like, oh, I know that passion. I know that dedication. And when she spoke and the students listened to her, I was immediately just wowed. And we talked afterwards, and she's done some incredible things um, in her legal past, which we're going to talk about. Um, but she was getting ready for something bigger and moving to New York City. And so I am very excited to have my guest, Nora Benavides. Welcome. Thank you so much, BJ. The feeling is absolutely mutual. We really fell in love that day. I know. This is a love fest on this particular (laughs) podcast today. Go ahead and warn everybody. So I'm going to jump right into it. I'm going to talk about your past, but I am so excited about what you're doing right now, and it's so significant. And that is um, you are the... Now with PEN America, and that's P-E-N, and an acronym, um, America, and you are the director of U.S. Free Expression Programs. So first, introduce our audience to what PEN America is and what it does. Sure. Well, I, I usually jump right in to talk about my work, uh, but I think that because we're here and it's a special celebratory day, I want to back up, actually. Okay. And I think that Penn uh, has this really interesting, rich history. We were founded right after World War I. 1922. And, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're at this place now, I think, in the United States, even around the world, where there's so much animosity, there's so much calcified sense uh, around our politics. And the way that Penn originated was actually out of many of the same sentiments. There was a sense from writers that the fears and the risks for them, their sense that maybe their writing would be censored following World War One, made them band together. And so across the world, writers came together to celebrate their writing and to defend it. And there were some very special people, including Eugene O'Neill, yeah. Willa Cather, yep. Robert Frost. I mm. mean, that is, uh, and, you know, as founding members. And then it continues on over the years to attract um, a membership of, of, of writers that are more known to us now, um, obviously, some no longer with us, Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, mm-hmm. Norman Mailer, Roxanne Gale, Salman Rushdie, Susan Sontag, Langston Hughes, some of the greatest minds and writers who, beyond their 
writing categories that, you know, whether it was an, as a novelist or an essayist or a poet, and that is actually part of I, I, I That's our acronym. That. I know. I, I didn't yeah. go in correct order. So it, it, your acronym, PEN, is Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. That's true. But, you know, we dropped it years ago and decided we were PEN as an acronym. And we slowly migrated into PEN American Center. And then eventually we merged with our Los Angeles office. And then we created a Washington office. And we, we just became PEN America. And it's interesting because I think that the, the PEN is itself has become the symbol for us. And so many of our long Vanguard members know the history of the acronym and they know who our founding members were. But it it's sort of taken on its own um, metaphor now. And everyone, they feel this cozy sense when, when we talk about the power of the pen. It, it, and there is power in the pen. And but what's also interesting is that this organization uh, partners the pen with the legal world yeah, very directly. And that has happened very recently with um, the lawsuit against President Trump. I'm going to go ahead and jump into that. Sure. Can you kind of tell us about the lawsuit yeah. and the concerns of, about the First Amendment, which is our free speech rights? Sure. Back, um, well, so I, I think, you know, before Trump was elected, we had always had a U.S. free expression program to some extent and had been concerned about the threats to press freedom broadly around the world. But once Trump was elected, there was at the, um, I think, wonderful reflection of our staff and board, the realization that there were rising threats uh, late in 2016 and through 2017. And so we began hearing more and more from our members. And we're a membership organization of writers and journalists. And we began hearing about some of their concerns, some of their um, trepidation uh, regarding the political climate. And uh, and so we looked into this more and we we wondered what was the relationship between the way Trump was talking about the media and interacting with the media. And we, of course, realized there were um, far, far uh, indirect things going on. There was Kellyanne Conway saying that anything that they didn't like was fake news. Um, there were sort of characterizing um, ways of antagonizing the media. But that was really early on in our case. We and, were, and, yeah. and, and although disturbing, I would say, I mean, it is free speech. I mean, to Absolutely. call it fake media, that is um, a, a, a right technically they have may disagree the the reality of that. Absolutely. And we have always said that. We've said the president has the right to say what he wants about the press, um, but what he doesn't have the right to do. And this is where we began seeing more and more is. And, he, and where lawsuits begin. The, and and that's the sort of this the great kernel, you know, when you start having these um, observations that are a little harder hitting. And we, we said, you know, um, we're, we're seeing something else, I think. And um, and our members were actually beginning to be somewhat um, beyond trepidatious about the kinds of fears of retaliation. And we slowly saw more and more and more um, examples of the way that the president was using the government to 
suppress or threaten members of the press and news outlets, especially when it was coming out of individuals and outlets that he uh, did not like and the way that they characterized him when he did not like it. And so we we first we did a study of our members to see what their experience was. Um, and we lawyered up because, you know, we're the plaintiff here, which is really exciting for us. Um, but we we put together this lawsuit knowing that there seemed to be a bit of a dearth of others that were stepping forward to do this kind of case. And in the face of retaliatory threats made by the president towards members of the press, um, we felt like someone needed to to take that role in leading a lawsuit. And the lawsuit encompasses in particular um, the targeting of Jim Acosta from CNN, who is White House correspondent, um, who is barred. Um, and they quit answering his questions and various things. Yeah, Can you and tell they, us what, what, how the lawsuit addresses that and, sure. and, and what other specific instances that were cited in the lawsuit that are, that are part of it? Sure. Um, well, there, there are several incidents, and I'm not sure. I want to go through all of them, but um, for the sake no, of we time. We won't read we'll, the complaint. Yep, we, we're not going to pull sent out you the, the complaint. Right? You did. You did. But we're not reading that no, on the podcast. I, no. like, I like our listeners. <laughs> Too and, much to pain them through that. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, one of our, I would say buckets, because I always refer to them, especially with the public, in buckets of, of claims that we are bringing in incidents that we look at. One is the suppression um, or barring of access to White House and administration proceedings of any kind. Um, and one of the best examples that people often already know about is Jim's incident where um, he was asking questions. And once he asked a question that the president didn't like, um, Sarah Sanders took away his press credential. Right. And Sarah Sanders being the White House yes. um, in charge of dealing with the press. Yes. And so that's her taking back his ability to do his job. And, you know, I think that, you know, uh, Jim had his own case, obviously, arising with CNN that they brought um, regarding his First Amendment and due process rights. His specific case was really only one of the examples that we've seen of those kinds of really unique instances when the president target specific individuals. He's also targeted John Brennan, for example, in hoping to and denying him national security clearance. And that's another example we think of where the president has used government powers in improper ways to silence people. And this particular case, what, what's the status of it now and where is it pending? Well, we filed in October um, in the Southern District of New York, and then we just filed our amended complaint in February. But the irony, and I never expected to have to talk about this, is that we had this shutdown. I'm not sure if you remember. I, the, yeah, the Do you remember the, shut, the, the yes. little shutdown that happened? Yes. And, Still um, recent in our minds. Yeah. And, you know, it threw the timing of the case off quite a bit. Uh, and it was just kind of surreal. None of us expected it. But we're now getting ready to file our response to the motion to dismiss that the government filed uh, actually this past week. So we've, we've got a ways to go because that's the thing. News is breaking every moment, but law goes slow. So we will recheck in with slowly. you on that particular project. The other thing that I found interesting that Penn's been working on is working with journalists and immigration advocates, and in particular, 
helping them, those who are maybe at a different point, uh, for instance, the photojournalist Ariana Dreschler, who was reporting on migrant caravans and how she was targeted for suppression of what she was showing of the reality of the journey to the United States and who these people are who are headed towards the border. How is Penn involved there? Well, like much of the early seedlings of our U.S. program, I think what we've done is we've identified when there are threats. And I came on to Penn not expecting to see as many threats and certainly not as frequently as I have seen with members of the press and with um, human rights advocates. But it seems almost every day I get contacted. What's interesting about the situation at the border is back in February, news broke that immigration advocates and attorneys, um, as well as journalists who were covering news at our southern border, were detained. And um, at that time, it was uh, the, the story was only barely developing, and they were detained by Mexican officials. Flash forward one more month, though. In March, it came out that the Department of Homeland Security, um, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, um, had actually been monitoring many of these people and had created dossiers of personal information about at least 59 individuals who were either attorneys working on immigration cases, either photojournalists or other journalists covering and hoping to go back and forth, reporting on the migrant caravan story, which sadly were on radio, but I would put it in quotes, migrant caravan. Um, and, and other human rights advocates broadly. They had started creating these files and monitoring their comings and goings, which first, from a privacy perspective, from a First Amendment perspective, I think is deeply troubling. Um, the pretext for this was that CBP said these individuals had engaged in uh, covering criminal acts. And at that time, I thought we needed to investigate more. And so we're in the process now of looking into what has really been going on at the border, what CBP, uh, what Border Patrol has been doing, and why. And to the extent we can hopefully take an integrated strategy approach, looking at the policy side, doing advocacy, and working with local partners, that's what we're beginning to do now. I'm going to take you from the border <laughs> to a different part of the United States now. I'm going to move you to Iowa. Great. Because again, a short jaunt. Exactly. And so we've gone from New York to the border. Now we're gone back up to Iowa. Um, and this one, being a podcaster, is a particular interest to me. Although the case, the, the situation itself isn't podcasting, but I put it in the same group as that, which is um, the issue with the Ohio Iowa State House of Representatives demanding press credentials for a blogger who is a, considers herself a political journalist. Tell me about what is going on there. Because to me, you know, the parallel of podcasting, you know, am, am I CNN? I, I am an independent person sitting in a studio in Atlanta, Georgia, um, questioning and asking things and exercising free speech. So what's happening in Iowa? Well, 
I was most excited to tell you about this one because of the very thing you're you're saying. And, um, you know, we have no definition in our law of what a journalist is, um, certainly not for First Amendment purposes in thinking through what rights people have. But a colleague of ours, Laura Boleyn, was hoping to cover news at the state capitol this legislative session, as she has done for over 10 years And she has a blog. uh, It's called The Bleeding Heartland. It has over 10,000 subscribers during the legislative session. And she covers things and is quite open about her political leanings and that she's liberal and left leaning. And the writing is slanted that way as such. She applied for um, a, you know, an application to be able to sit in the press section of the House of Representatives and was denied. And what's interesting about this case is that she has been denied, um, but the reasoning that the House has given has changed multiple times. And so at first they said, well, we won't let you in because you're actually not a traditional journalist. You're a blogger, which I would combat and I would say that that is um, a hollow argument to deny her from a First Amendment perspective. But what was then interesting is that they started trying to find, I think, or at least it appears that way from the news reports, is that they tried to find other ways to deny her access. Um, And the shifting reasoning is part of what I found concerning. So that either way, whether it is a First Amendment basis that we can challenge this and that there was viewpoint discrimination because of her liberal-leaning blog writing, um, or whether it was that she was a non-traditional blogger, journalist, I think all of that um, really uh, prompted our concern in saying someone needs to stand up to this because what it looks like is that the government wants to censor and control who covers news at the Capitol. And it's sort of the thread of a lot of what we're seeing in our work. And 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 I'm going to go from that capital. Th- th- this is all linear, which is to the Georgia capital Uh-oh. right down the street. Um, a proposed House bill that we came in, it sneaked in right at the end of the session. So it's not looming other than the introduction and the discussion of it. It's not like there's going to be a vote and there's going to be a lot of time, fortunately, for people to look at what is being proposed, but asking for a journal, a government journalism ethics board. Yeah. So um, Representative Andy Welch from McDonough is actually retiring. But before his retirement in his um, all his glory, he pre-filed on the last day of the 2019 legislative session, a bill that will not be heard until the 2020 legislative session. And that bill in seeking to create a journalism ethics board, um, when you read the bill, and I would say for, for the lawyers that listen to this, it's it's quite a fun read. Um, it, the, the board itself is tasked with a, a kind of very, very vague set of duties. But the strongest section of the bill is that the board would be allowed to investigate. There are two things. One, be allowed to investigate journalist behavior to confirm that it complies with ethic, uh, some kind of ethics code that they will be creating. And two, they are allowed to then um, issue investigations and sanctions against journalists. A really interesting wrinkle to all of that is that anyone who is interviewed by a journalist in Georgia uh, has the ability to claim and seek 
any records, including notes taken during an interview, um, to be able to get those records. And I think it's uh, one that's a little concerning for sourcing and confidentiality for journalists. Right, because some of the greatest stories of, you know, that have changed the trajectory of our country have come from um Less most famous deep throat, you know, right, right. <laughs> these these yeah. anonymous sources um, who are put themselves at peril, but maybe you know don't want to be fully exposed um, right at the beginning of something before they know it's. You know, sometimes people choose to come forward later. They start off as anonymous, right. but right. it's their choice. Yeah, and, and that it, that's concerning to me, mostly because I think we lose sight of. Um, what's really going on. And as I kind of alluded to before, the thread through all of this is that it seems that there are government interests in regulating and controlling what others say in ways that violate the First Amendment and our free expression rights. And to the extent Georgia is perhaps doing that, I think that it's a troubling um, example to file before a session as if to threaten the press, that they better be careful how they characterize whatever the, the politics are going on at the Capitol or otherwise with the governor's office. We don't know. Um, we will be watching carefully. We will. But but it but, but it really does, uh, you know, open up this whole, you know, where we are now. Sometimes I just I wake up and I think, wow, I can't even believe I'm living through these things, if that makes sense. You know, that I remember studying things in college and what I was obsessed with. Everybody knows I've talked about it before. I was a history major and 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 um, I was always intrigued by these types of periods of our history and of world history and it can be used you know we're talking right now about you know a more conservative side using it but i mean restriction can come from any point of point of view um, absolutely and so you know to identify yourself one way if you identify yourself as a conservative you should be as interested in free speech as someone who could defines themselves as liberal because Either way, if you don't have both those points of view and then whatever new points come in in different directions that don't fit that little, you know, we, we've created this little two idea system and we know there's a lot, many, many more. But we, we limit everybody having a chance and at some point becoming oppressed by somebody else's idea mm-hmm. without allowing the free communication of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're in such a, an interesting I would say it's somewhat sobering place that on the one hand, there is so much rapid communication across any kind of platform you could ever imagine, uh, which means at any given time we can communicate with whoever across the entire globe. And yet we are more divided than ever. And the especially when we think about things on campuses, for example, and free speech implications, there are so much animosity. There's so much calcified rancor between groups that many of us, I think, we're, we're seeing echo chambers where people are not actually engaged in open debate. And that's another prong of what PEN America works with is the campus free speech issues as yes. well. Is it, what what kind of things are y'all doing on with campus um, free speech? Everything. We, okay. we just released a report. It's uh, an update from our 2017 report. Um, and it's really looking at what the state of college dialogues, debates and speech look like right now. 
much of it is informed actually by the Trump administration. And a lot of the political wave that we are seeing is something that we we knew we needed to examine. As part of the follow-up to that, we're engaging with campuses and university officials, with students, faculty across the country to begin talking about a lot of what these issues originate in. And so, for example, in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Los Angeles with my colleague who runs our campus speech project, and we'll be talking with UCLA about protest rights on campuses. And, uh, you know, because it's, it's a difficult, you know, it's a hard thing for a campus. And this happened in the 60s as well as, you know, it is an educational institution which obviously hits you at a point in your life where you feel, you know, you have recently emancipated from your parents and there is great power and discovery. Um, you know, I went from being, you know, a super quiet young woman in high school. I can't ever fathom that. It's true. <laughs> I was like so painfully shy other than like doing model United Nations, you know, <laughs> and I, would, I could debate on that and, and those kind of <laughs> things. I could talk like crazy. And then mm. the rest of the time, I was really quiet. Oh. Um, I don't but, believe I, I don't buy that at all. <laughs> so having well, that's that I'm going to stick to that for mm-hmm. now. But, you know, I get to you know, you get to a college campus and there's so many ideas and there's so many new ways of thinking and expressing yourself. Um, and I look back when I was there and there wasn't as much, I mean, there were things going on, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the, what we see now, which is, which I love where um, I can talk to young people and they know as much or far more than I did about what's happening in the world and politics and how it's affecting them. And, um, you know, that their educational funding is a threat and how are they going to afford it because it's so expensive. I mean, there are all these pressures on them. Um, and yeah, and we also have more ways to communicate. It's not just having a rally. It's getting on Twitter, getting on Facebook, get, even using Instagram, uh, you know, your photographs to express a political um, concern or, or protest. Um, so it's more immediate. It's fast. It can be very rough and tumble. Um, and I also noticed that you'll have that online harassment field manual, which probably needs to be implemented everywhere of, you know, how to deal with the harassment that comes from expressing your point of view. Well, um, I'm going from this to yeah. do a training with journalists in Midtown Atlanta uh, for those who are very concerned or have already suffered online harassment, which, you know, it was an interesting wrinkle to our work because... Part of what we've noticed at Penn is, well, and we are always committed, I should say, of course, to the free expression for all online users. But I will say, who has been more affected by online harassment, do you think? I would think journalists. What And what demographics do you think? Well, I'm guessing more liberal journalists. And women. And, and people of and color. And women and people of color. And exactly. Break it down that way who, as well. Yep, who belong to LGBT communities. Um, it was only through really beginning to investigate what was going on online while still committed to free expression and the First Amendment rights for people on every platform for all users that we saw the very intense harassment of specific segments that are often victims in higher rates than than others. And so we've started this online harassment field manual. It's an excellent resource, a holistic guide that provides really tools and resources to prepare 
to be the victim of online harassment and then how you respond. So so just briefly, I can't give me the whole mm. manual, but just a little bit of, you know, if you find yourself in that position, mm. what what are some of the things that you have seen to help combat an individual who just falls down one tweet away from um, being everywhere? One, I think the the strongest takeaway is always to have allies to have cyber allies and in-person allies who can either help you monitor your social media accounts and help document what's going on for you because it can be extremely traumatic um, but to have people in real life as well because you need and and this gets even so further. you mean literally like a friend watching it for you because it's too much for you to take yes. but tell them how bad it's getting yep. if you because I guess some people just drop off or just drop their account and that's a great well that's a great point because you know when we do these trainings I say what do you think your first reaction would be if you were um, receiving online harassment I know my reaction would be make it stop make it go away but a lot of times that feeds the trolls is the expression that if you block or mute people, it actually riles them up more. And there's this sort of psychological effect that when they're anonymous, you can get away with more. Um, and so part of what we're also trying to do is elevate the ways that you can shift conversations online so that the very earliest comments, for example, on any news article or blog post, someone who comments from our podcast today and says, Nora's horrible, we hate her, that can set the tone for the rest of all of the comments. And so what we're trying to do is think about how can you shift that? How can we try to help and how can news outlets, for example, work on shifting the tone of what those comment threads look like to move away from that kind of hateful language. And, and that's a part I would I get emphasize a hateful language. It's not that you can't have criticism because um, Lord knows, especially as a lawyer and advocate, I mean, there are two sides or multiple sides to every case. And we're and we feel very strongly. And that's why we go into court and battle. Well, there's it always out. my side, BJ. And that's the winning <laughs> and, yeah, side. There, there you go. I got to put you on every case of mine. Then. I got to figure that out. There's no but side. yes, there are two sides. One's losing. But but but. You know, there's a difference between that and just the crushing, devastating um, hate that comes through that is difficult to for anybody, no matter what your ideological background is. Um, and that can turn into potential physical real threats. That's right. And and I think in a, in a larger sense, part of what is so important to do with our free expression program is is help set the tone that there isn't just free speech rights for people who engage in that kind of language and and conduct and that really there needs to be a empowerment piece to understanding for people who think that free speech doesn't affect them that it does and that we need to arm ourselves and know our rights to be able to exercise them and and really come together there's something coming up soon that's going to be um, very special for you and the others at PEN America, an event that you're planning in Atlanta. Tell us about it. Oh, I'm very excited. We, you know, we're rolling out a coordinated slate of activities across the country for World Press Freedom Day, which is May 3rd, I will tell you. But um, 
part of what we've worked on is something really special in Atlanta in particular. I think part of it is because of the threats we're seeing in Georgia and that we know, for example, the bill that was pre-filed that we've already talked about. Um, we, we wanted to elevate and celebrate press freedom uniquely in Georgia. Um, and so we're working on an event. It'll be a wonderful discussion on May 2nd at the Carter Center. And we are thrilled to announce that our keynote speaker will be Stacey Abrams who has just written a book about leading from the outside. And I think one of the things we're excited about is talking about the importance of local storytelling, of how we can empower our communities. And a lot of that is done through journalism. Right now we're seeing threats, as we've talked about throughout the entire hour, um, unprecedented threats to local news, as well as to individual members of the press. And so we're hoping to help shift the narrative around that and find ways to engage with cities around the country to fight for and to protect local press freedom. And will some of the programming that you do in Atlanta be available online for people later on to be able to see what you've done here with this special um, nod to Press Freedom Day? Of course it will. And I can share it with you so that you can share with all of your wonderful podcast subscribers. There we go. We will supplement that when that comes out. This has been awesome. Well, I know. I mean, I, can we well, do it again? <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we're going to just, <laughs> if we can sit down, we've we got a whole nother shtick coming. DJ and Nora <laughs> on the road. <laughs> um, so with every episode, we enjoy tea as we're sitting here talking. And today's tea is a blueberry hibiscus. Ooh. And I chose it for the blueberry because within um, Native American medicine and culture, um, the blueberry leaf, which that's, you know, it's not really blueberry in our tea, but the leaf itself um, from the blueberry plant. And I've now that I've learned this, getting ready for this, I have blueberries. I grow blueberries in my yard. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get the leaves ready for my own personal tea that I can make and dry out, put them in the dehydrator and get them going. But that leaf was known to provide protection. And so that word protection, oh. protection of our rights, protection mm -hmm. of free speech, Mm -hmm. um, ties into you being here with us and sharing your Aww. knowledge and wisdom. Um, thank BJ, you, Nora. Thank you. This is such a lovely treat. We'll do it again, I hope. I hope. Definitely. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>